I just want to welcome everybody to this week's UBBO seminar, and I'm very excited to introduce Dr. Fiona Lavelle, who is a research fellow at the Institute for Global Food Security at Queen's University in Belfast. And so IGFS is a research institute which promotes global food integrity from soil to society. And in there, Dr. Lavelle is part of the Behavioral and Consumer Sciences Unit investigating behaviors, perceptions, and attitudes of all stakeholders along the food chain. Fiona's background is in sports science and health with a degree from Dublin City University and preventative cardiology from Imperial College London. And this gives her a very wide perspective on a number of health related and food issues. And she obtained her PhD in 2017, uh, investigating the impact of cooking and food skills on the healthiness of diets in adults, as well as barriers and facilitators to cooking from basic ingredients. And subsequently, she has been involved in and led on developing and implementing age-appropriate food education materials for primary school children. And she's currently leading novel and interdisciplinary research on interlinking motor skills development and cooking skills for children. And so she's also been involved in a number of food-related European projects, including consulting on the development and validation of a food engagement measure. And if this was not enough, in addition to all this other exciting work, she led a collaborative international survey assessing consumer changes in food practices during the initial phase of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is going to be the focus of her talk today. And so with that, I turn it over to Fiona. Well, thank you. And thanks for the very long and detailed introduction. Yes, I'm Fiona. And I work in Queens in Belfast, but as you can tell, I have a bit of a southern accent. So hopefully I speak a little bit slower than Belfast people, but we do tend, all Irish people tend to speak quite quickly. So I'm trying my very best to slow down. But if I am speeding up, feel free to wave at me and go, can you just slow down a bit? But yeah, so I'm basically going to talk to you about our survey that we conducted um, at the beginning of COVID. And so I'm basically talking about from the pandemic to the pan. I'm just going to give you a little bit of an intro to the background of this kind of cooking research area before I go into the actual COVID, just so you have kind of an idea around it. So basically, this is quite a new research area, and I suppose the majority of research has been conducted in the past kind of 20 years. So it is really an emerging research area, and it has been criticised for its lack of uh, theoretical underpinnings and lack of validated measurements and also weak intervention designs. So in the past kind of, I suppose, 10 years or so, um, it has been improving, and this is done a lot through um, positive international collaboration. So basically, there's been a lot of work in developing va and validating different measures in this area. So basically, that they can be used globally and that they can there can be um, global comparisons made. Because before, everybody who was, who was working in this area was kind of just going, oh, I'll measure this part and I'll measure that. And nothing was consistent. And the intervention designs were also, a lot of it tended to be due to funding, but the design was basically pre-post, no control groups. So there was a lot of issues in the areas that have been in the past 10 years, I suppose, people have been working on trying to um, strengthen the research area, I suppose. And then overall, our research group in Queens, we started working in this area in 2014. And that was due to a project funded by Safe Food Ireland. So I'm not sure if you're aware of what Safe Food is, but Safe Food is basically a cross-government island of Ireland funded body that promotes food safety and also nutritious eating on the island of Ireland. So they funded this project and we started working in the cooking skills, cooking and food skills area. 
So then our research from that project, we started a lot with developing measures um, and trying to strengthen the intervention design. And basically, we wanted to know as well what the current situation was. And because there was no validated measures, we were kind of starting from scratch and trying to investigate this across areas. So you can see we did a lot of like basic research in it and like a lot of qual and quantum, obviously, um, your reviews. That was kind of how we started in this area um, working on it. And since we have also started collaborating with um, interested in this area, Julia Wolfson in the USA is a big name in it. She's very well researched in it. And she's also done a lot of um, this basic ground level research as well. Or in mainland UK, there's Susanna Mills and she does a lot of um, research around it. And then also then we have a lot of Australian collaborators. So Professor Claire Collins or Laureate Professor Claire Collins, um, she would, her group and her uh, research institute do a lot of research and cooking over in Australia. So we've kind of all started collaborating and trying to just basically um, strengthen this research area. And then me personally, I had started kind of to move into the children area and I was going along the lines of trying to strengthen that, start the strengthening in that research area and developing measures and for that. And then obviously COVID came along and there was a bit of a pandemic pause on what was happening and what was going on. So that kind of stopped where we were at with that and but also was very relevant and I'll talk about how then we moved on to look and investigating in for COVID what was going on during COVID. So back in the day before COVID if anyone can actually remember what it was like back then. So basically there was a decrease in home cooking in cooking skills and cooking confidence. This was being seen globally um, and it was being found in the US and uh, New Zealand, Australia, mainland Europe and as well as Ireland and the UK this kind of decline in home being more and more reported so basically why did that matter because obviously people if they had different alternatives why does it matter if they're not cooking at home what has been found and what has been linked is that cooking has been linked with a better diet quality and also weight management and then there's also specific foods within that you use or that are that are associated with cooking also have positive associations. So I suppose if we're looking at it, so if you increase your cooking, it's found that it increases an intake of fruit and veg and fruit and veg have been associated with positive mental well-being. And if you increase your cooking, it has been associated with a decrease in consumption of sweets and fast food, which they have then in themselves been associated with stress and depressive symptoms amongst many more. So this is then this kind of resulted in um, a promotion and um, public agencies were trying started trying to promote cooking and cooking from basic ingredients and cooking from scratch or all along those lines. So it was just basically this kind of people were trying to return to the kitchen. But obviously, then our research showed the major barrier to cooking was time. And there is some research debating whether it was a perceived, a perceived time deficit or an actual time deficit, but it didn't matter. No matter what, this time was a big issue and um, was causing all the issues uh, around trying to increase cooking because obviously people felt there was too much energy required to cook from basic ingredients or it was a lot of effort to come home from work, having to start, having to peel the carrots, all that effort put in and then you end up with the same meal at the end in their mind. And then again, there was also priorities. People were trying to balance a work life. So obviously um, women are more in the workforce now. Uh, so they were, were not just solely responsible for the home preparations, but they also wanted then, and both parents wanted then when they came home, they wanted to spend more time with their children instead of just being tied to the kitchen, having to make the meals from scratch. So obviously the use of convenience products increased. And then obviously convenience products, there have been associated now with cancers and all of 
that is a different story and we're not going down that line today. But basically, this was then felt like the time was the major barrier. People just cooking wasn't on the agenda for people. And then COVID happened. And we all I'm not going to go into too much details because we all know there was dramatic societal changes, a lot of movement restrictions, close of businesses which that included restaurants and takeaways as well in the beginning. So that then resulted, obviously, people might might need to be more involved in the meal preparation at home. Obviously, there was a big stay home movement. And then a lot of people were working from home. And I don't know about you, but we just found out today here in Belfast that Northern Ireland has extended its lockdown till 1st of April. So we are all still feeling these changes and the situation continues. So ideal if we could update and see have our findings continued but that's another story as well so obviously lockdown life what has happened basically it has removed one of the main barrier that people said that people said to cooking was time so there's obviously an increased amount of time available there's uh, as a result from not having to commute to work or actually spending time in the home environment while working as well and this is like one of the major impacts of lockdown But also then there's also been a giant concern around physical and mental well-being. And obviously, as I mentioned before, some of the food products associated with an increase in cooking can be um, or can have an impact on both these things. So then we decided we were like, okay, we need to investigate what's going on. What's happening with people's behaviours? How has people changed or are they changing? Obviously, in the beginning, there was um, anecdotal evidence about uh, reported behaviour changes. And obviously, there was shopping data coming out about how um, people were changing. So we wanted to investigate this and see what was happening. So we decided we'd do an online survey. And I suppose we chose these four regions that So we looked at the island of Ireland, Great Britain, the USA and New Zealand. And I'm not going to get too political or anything about it, but the island of Ireland was basically chosen as one whole because viruses don't obey borders, real or not real borders, physical or not physical, I should say. And then Great Britain and the USA and New Zealand. So we chose these four as because all four of these regions had reported a similar decline in home cooking or in home cooking previous to the pandemic and an increase in convenience food to different levels overall, but they had all reported similar patterns and they all had a different approach to the management of the pandemic in the beginning. For example, the USA had a decentralized approach. There was no federal overall ruling. So there was a lot of differences going on. So they had different approaches then and there was less restrictions implemented in the USA because of this. New Zealand obviously had a very strict approach. They locked down, they closed all their borders and actually were quite successful in the beginning stages. And then there was obviously differences between the island of Ireland and GB. And that's why we kind of also wanted to investigate whether these differences in the beginning of how they approached the situation, whether they would have an impact. So we got 2,360 participants taking part in this. And um, again, yet this was early on in May, June time. So we were all kind of in lockdown one, I suppose, at that stage. Um, And New Zealand was just kind of starting to come out of their lockdown one, I suppose, at that phase. I just wanted to show then that obviously because of the emerging situation that wasn't we was not predicted we tried our very best to include validated or adapted validation measures so you can see so we use our cooking skills confidence uh, measure which is a validated measure that we developed early on i think it's 2017 that paper and from that then we adapted the food skills confidence measure into a food practices measure 
Um, so we use that through um, a critical review of the items in our measure, and we then included extra ones that were, I suppose, pandemic specific. And then after that, when we collected all the data, we tried our very best to validate it. We looked at obviously um, internal consistency. And then I also split the uh, data and conducted an exploratory factor analysis and a confirmatory factor analysis, which obviously then reduced some of the items out of our original measure. And we ended up with, I suppose, what the structure, the factual structure is there on the screen of the two different, or two different subscales within the overall measure. But so that would be your organizational food practices and your management food practices. And I'll talk about them coming up. I suppose then we had cooking and preparation behaviors, which were items we had used in previous surveys as well. And then we used the dine for to assess dietary intake, or we use an adapted version of the dine. And we focused mainly on the fruit and veg consumption intake, and then also um, a part of the saturated fat intake. And I suppose, obviously, with the adoption of these different measures, it was trying to keep it within um, a short enough time period for the participants so there wasn't participant fatigue and it was also as well so that we could get as um, viable data as possible with measures that we knew um, were validated so that's I suppose our reasoning behind that. So I'm just going to give you a quick overview of the characteristics of the participants in the study but I'm not going to spend too long on this but it's just to give you an idea. So you can kind of see that there was even enough gender splits um, considering between the USA, Great Britain and New Zealand. You can also see the age, the mean age of the participants here. And also we gathered information on self-reported BMI as well and on um, education. I just want to highlight that the island of Ireland is slightly different and I will come to it as well in our limitations part. Because the island of Ireland was a different recruitment strategy, we recruited for the island of Ireland through mainly social media. So that's how we got our, um, our sample for the island of Ireland. Whereas Great Britain, the USA and New Zealand, we used, uh, we used a market research company, obviously, for us to get access to participants in those countries. So there are some differences and it's just a thing to bear in mind um, for the island of Ireland when I'm talking about it going through the data. I also just wanted to highlight, although I've given you the mean ages, but I would like to highlight the ranges of ages. So from each country, from the island of Ireland, we had 18 to 79, Great Britain, we had 18 to 91, and USA, 18 to 92, and New Zealand, 18 to 88. And I'll talk about that point earlier, but I just wanted to highlight it for you all now. I'm not meaning to scare you throwing up a big table of data and I'm not going to go through it all like this, but it's just a highlight that we have a lot of data and a lot of results from this research. And also that although some of them may look significant, obviously with Bonferroni corrections, they may not have been actual significant results. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus in on GB and just talk about what the significant results were and compare them then the similarities and differences between all four regions then going through it that way. I felt it would be easier. I also did not want to bombard you with um, bar charts or anything just because of the sheer amount of data. So I thought it'd be easiest to go through it this way. So what did you do? You took to the pan. We did as well in, on the island of Ireland and so did New Zealand. We all took to the pan, maybe out of boredom <laughs> or maybe out of necessity, but it was there. So what, what happened? There was a decrease in ready-made ingredients, an increase in fresh made or fresh or basic ingredients in um, your meal preparations or your dinner preparations. There was also an increase in baking. Did anybody else get on the banana bread kick? Because I was definitely all over the banana bread. 
partially because I like it, but it was also something <laughs> to do. An interesting point here, there was a decrease in the frequency of takeaways. And now this may have changed, but I'd just like to remind you, this was at the beginning of the pandemic. So there might there was a lot of restaurants may not have changed over to their takeaway um, services or delivery services. Also, there might have been a lot of nerves in the beginning around whether it was OK or safe to get delivery services. So that's kind of we think what happened around the takeaway decrease in the beginning. It'd be very interesting to do that now and see whether it's still the case. I definitely don't think it would be but who knows so and then also there was a decrease in food waste and I'd like to highlight that these these findings were also the same for New Zealand and the island of Ireland and the island of Ireland had the largest decrease in food waste there was also an increase in bulk buying and this was found in all four regions including the USA so the USA didn't have any of the above findings they stayed the same for all those um, and that may be something to do with, um, obviously, the movement restrictions. If they're not being restricted to the home, then they may not have changed their food practices or food behaviours or cooking behaviours. Um, but the increase in bulk buying um, was in all four regions. Um, and this is found in times of crisis. So it is found in when earthquakes happen, for example, there, there would be a lot of panic and bulk buying. And this can be perpetuated by the media. So this is why we also think this element happened within the USA, because obviously the instant access to media today and social media as well would still perpetuate these feelings globally, this kind of fear element and panic. You don't know what's going to happen, so you're bulk buying your food. And obviously this also then led to... Um, an increase in difficulty finding ingredients and the island of Ireland and GB had the greatest increase in difficulty finding these ingredients. Um, so this may be because perhaps New Zealand is more self-sufficient as an island on its own, or obviously the USA has such a mass expanse and easier access to different foods. And if they weren't fit, um, if they were if they weren't um, isolated as much they might be able to go to different areas as well to find um, ingredients or if they weren't restricting as much I mean. so then on intake for food so we found an increase in fruit and I'd just like to highlight that it was only in GB we found the increase in fruit in the other three regions there was no increase in fruit so well done you guys we also found an increase in vegetables um, and that would be in all areas apart from the USA again but also we found an increase in saturated fat and that was again all areas except the USA which again might be something to do with if they weren't changing their actual practices then they may not have had an increase and just a note something the island of Ireland we had the greatest increase in saturated fat so that wasn't the best one for us and then on to what I, what I was talking about earlier. So I suppose kind of what we term food practices and organisational food practices. So that's your kind of planning ahead, shopping with your grocery list or keeping basics in a cupboard. Um, and we found an increase in those, again, in all regions except the USA. Um, and I suppose these uh, probably increase because it, they help to reduce the time spent in shop. And obviously in the very beginning as well, there was a lot of media about, you know, oh, one once to the shop and stay home as much as you can. Don't be going out all the time. So it would be an element, obviously, if you're going to plan what you're going to get in the shop, it'll help you reduce your time in the shop. And also if they help to stick to your budget, which obviously is becoming more and more um, an element of that is going to keep implement or keep impacting people as time go on because obviously this we not not our, not in our this study but there has been a lot of research around an increase in food insecurity 
obviously with people um, losing jobs or going on COVID pay, they don't have the same means and they don't have the same budgets for spending on food. So they're using these organizational practices then to stay um, or to stick to their budget because obviously it is now more limited. And then there was also an increase in management food practices. So this would be your preparing in advance, your batch cooking and freezing. And interestingly, this increase was only seen in GB and the USA. And this may be because at that time, the restrictions maybe have or may have been less in those areas than in comparison to New Zealand or Ireland at that point it may have been slightly stricter. But as, but as I've noted here on the slide, um, their management food practices, so you're preparing in advance and batch cooking, they're going to become more useful again as, as our time reduces again. So these are basically strategies to use when you have no time or you're going back to the office or you're starting to commute again. They just help you to continue your cooking practices or your cooking from um, basic ingredients um, where you can batch cook at the weekend and then, continue, and then you'll have the meals in the fridge or frozen that you can use throughout the week. Um, and then I'm just going to talk, I suppose, about the implications. And obviously, there's been a lot of implications on the food supply chain, um, the global one and the uh, local food supply chain. And it, we, it's been f found that uh, the local food supply chain has had to supplement the global one a lot more during the pandemic, especially in the beginning, when there was when it was very difficult to get ingredients or keep um, the supply moving because of the movement restrictions in the beginning. And basically, to ensure the supply chain continues, we may see and we may continue to see restrictions on items. Um, so obviously, you know, I know toilet paper isn't food, but it, that was it's an easy example in the beginning. That was you can only buy two containers of toilet roll in the beginning, but uh, but that may then start applying more and more to food again as as the lockdowns continue to keep the supply chain um, flowing. But there's also needs to be more government messages and coming from farm government all levels reassurance of the resiliency of the supply chain that they are able to cope on management or manage um i suppose they're called demand side shocks or supply shocks and that they can cope with this and basically that there won't be a shortage of food they will cope and they will adapt i suppose is a better term and then we also as consumers have a responsibility to ensure the supply chain resiliency so I suppose on the left hand side this is like an early um infographic we did about how you can help be a responsible food consumer and it's all about as as we were saying shopping and planning not buying not buying in bulk as it adds so much pressure to the food uh, supply chain but again preparing in advance or batch cooking or you know trying to have your basics in the cupboard and using up those again helps with food waste and your food budget but it's all about this approach to trying your best to be um a responsible food consumer um just just kind of as everyone goes play your part in helping as much as you can i suppose again a key message is obviously balance your intake we obviously saw the positive changes in fruit and vegetables and then also then the saturated fat intake this at at the current point and as the lockdowns continue there is going to be increased pressure on physical and mental health and it's a key message to send across that we really need to keep and be mindful of our food intake especially obviously if you're cooking as i'll go on to the next point increase add an extra veg into it it won't do any harm i won't change the recipe too much but it will help in the long term it's all about kind of keep trying to keep the balance and as i said it is a tough time and i am not saying don't have a takeaway. Everybody needs to take away the odd time. And it also supports local business, which is a good element. If you are going to have one, maybe, maybe use local in that sense. 
but it is it's just about being mindful don't have a takeaway every day or every week you know try keep a balance and try keep uh, keep increasing obviously your fruit and veg especially and I know it's an age-old and <laughs> um, promotion of fruit and veg but it really is essential at the moment and then I suppose obviously our point would be a promotion of easy and cheap recipes especially with the increase in food insecurity it is all about the cheap recipes and as I said obviously recipes that include fruit and veg great but it is key that they have to be cheap or using up ingredients in a cupboard something that people have stockpiled people stockpile the pasta give them recipes that use the pasta you know same with rice it's all about using what people have especially when they're going to be struggling and just a note on that, we had a chef, a local Belfast chef, did a couple of videos for us on basically quick and easy recipes that use mainly what's in your cupboard. So if anybody is interested, you can click onto that link there um, and and you'll find those videos. And this is just another point I want to highlight. Um, it's currently under review, so it's not actually out yet. So you're getting a sneak peek. Obviously, for parents during the pandemic, there's been a lot of extra pressure as well. They've had the children at home and they're currently back at home, be, having to be homeschooled. There is a lot of pressure on um, trying to entertain them and educate them at the same time. So we have we took a subsample from our larger study and wanted to see what was happening with parents around the food practices and, and including their kids, what's happening. We were delighted to see that there was an increase in including children in baking activities and fun activities and that is great and it's a great way to entertain children um, and just expose them to more food and just experiential learning as well but additionally we were so excited to see that there was um, an increase in everyday meal preparation so people were including their children in everyday meal preparation so the boring stuff the making the sandwiches or the the preparing dinner parts so it was just it was just a great thing to see that there was this increase again because we have found in previous research that there is this um, lack of skill transference from parent to child and that's obviously due to time again from parents don't have time to bring their kids into the kitchen while um, they're trying to rush through and get the dinner made but interestingly, we found those that had greater cooking skills, confidence um, actually included their children more. And also those who included their children more frequently had a higher diet quality. Now, obviously, we can't say if this was um, parents who had a higher diet quality included their children more frequently or whether by including their children more frequently, the parents diet quality improved. And this our rationale behind that or reasoning behind that could be that because if parents are trying to include their children more frequently then they are trying to cook or use recipes that have greater fruit and vegetable content of them because they want to be a responsible and positive role model for their child so that's just one added element that I was very excited to see anyway and again we're not saying kids in the kitchen fear stress and mess we have a lot of research on it it causes a lot of problems obviously parents can be really feared they've had despite being in the kitchen from a young age themselves it is a scary thought to have your child playing playing with knives or leaning over the cooker and um, so to help develop that we developed age-appropriate cooking skills and these were based on children's developmental skills and then had an international panel um, assess and critique the placing of the skills so we've come up on the left hand side you can see a lovely <laughs> little infographic of um, the different skills children have the physical capabilities of performing in the different age ranges so if anybody is interested they are there and I'm happy for the slides to be shared as well if anybody wants but it's just also a note um, cooking can help with homeschooling for anyone that is struggling through at the moment and I have the greatest respect for you 
who trying to work and balance everything, including homeschooling. But yeah, so basically cooking has been shown to help with teaching maths. So obviously the adding and subtracting of ingredients or obviously as well, literacy would help. So basically um, reading recipes or simple recipes or it can help with science as well. Um, there's been lots of different elements and shown and our colleagues in Australia um, the University of Newcastle, Australia do a lot of research around this nutrition education Use, using nutrition education to teach academic subjects so just a side note for anyone that is homeschooling it can be used cooking can be used not just to entertain the kids but to teach the kids as well and then on that note I just want to talk about the overall limitations of our study because obviously no study is perfect and then during a the pandemic there are added and difficulties so what I was pointing out earlier are recruitment strategies so the island of Ireland was a different recruitment strategy. We did the social media for that. And that was due because we hadn't um, at that point when we started, we hadn't gotten the funding cleared for um, the other ones. So the island of Ireland through social media started first um, and then we got the marketing company to get the other samples, basically. So that was kind of what caused the slight um, differences and potential biases in the sample. So there was obviously a gender. There was more females in the island of Ireland sample. There was obviously I was higher educated sample um, and I think it was a younger sample as well. But saying that if one of the points of being a female sample in theory, according to the research, females are more responsible for the food preparation and cooking behaviors. So in theory, we would expect to see less of a change or a no change during the pandemic if that was the case. So there is a bit of a debate whether how much of an impact that had on the sample. So technology as well and the online com completion of the surveys um, and this is why I highlighted the age range so although obviously there is a component in technology and it might not have the capacity to reach older ages there also has been a lot of research around upskilling of older individuals especially due to the pandemic especially because if they have to learn to work from home so you could see like we had participants in their 90s completing the survey so we don't actually think the technology aspect had a major impact on um, on the findings. Um, and then obviously at the bottom two are with all cross-sectional surveys, we've got this potential for self-report bias and memory bias, um, and then causality as well. And on that note, I would just like to take thank the collaborators um, and the funding. So this survey was funded internally from the IGFS um, and also from St. Angela's College Sligo. They're part of the National University of Ireland Galway. So I'm not sure if you're aware of, the, of them, but they are a great institution and they're the sole providers of home economics education teaching in Ireland. So they have a great and wealth of knowledge when it comes to cooking. So they are some of our um, collaborators in a lot of our cooking research as well, because they have a lot of insights and are trying to turn more into a research institution as well. Obviously they have a teaching focus, but they are trying to turn that um, and so obviously our collab my collaborators are Dr. Benson, Dr. Murphy, Professor Chris Elliott, Professor Moyer Dean, Amanda McCult, and Dr. Elaine Mooney from um, St. Angela's. Um, and if you want some more information, we have one paper published in Nutrients, and that is the overview of all the data. And if you want to see more on the specific content of the different uh, changes from well, the big table, there's more than just the big table, but from that one, that's all in that paper. Um, and then the parental data is currently under review in public health nutrition. So hopefully we'll hear about that one soon as well. Um, I've also written uh, articles recently for the conversation. Um, 
and I'm also happy if anybody wants more information or has any genuine questions as well I'm happy for you to drop me an email or send me a tweet or a direct message or I'm also happy to answer questions right now as well thanks very much for having me Thank you so much, Fiona. That was fantastic. Um, and it's really exciting to see some of the results 